Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Tuesday the 24th of October. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. Oh, it's, it's so far past time, calm to scrap it. Homework should have been done with a long time ago. There is absolutely no point whatsoever in primary school children continuing with homework. Mostly t- the food system demand would be like um, cereals, uh, rice, pastas, vegetables, potatoes, maybe some things for kids' lunches, you know, that we don't have money for kids' lunches. Potatoes. Because now is the time to forage, to go out and get the seeds, like the horse chestnuts, like the acorns, and like the, the seeds that grow the silver birch. Colm O'Mungoin was in for Clare Byrne today and was chatting all things bread. He was joined by Louise Reynolds, dietitian with the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute. Good morning, Colm. So you're standing in the middle of the supermarket. You've got your you've got your bread choice there. It's, and it's growing all the time. You know, it really has become a huge array now um, of breads from when you just walk into the supermarket and you get that lovely smell from the bakery and then you walk down to the bread aisle and certainly it, it's growing all the time. It gets um, a bad rep though, doesn't it? It bread? does. And I don't really know why. And I suppose the more I was looking into it for, for, you know, chatting, coming in and chatting to you this morning, I thought, where did this come from? This sort of fear of bread. And I would definitely be here to say, enjoy your bread. Don't worry. There's no need to avoid bread in the diet. Um, Certainly in terms of the nutritional value, some breads are better than others. They're not all created equally. So, um, you know, there are certain choices within the bread aisle that you can probably make for yourself or your family that are going to give you that extra little bit of nutrition as well. Um, Obviously, if you are going to the bakery section, you know, things aren't labelled. So you can kind of go for a wholemeal or a white or bread rolls. And then, of course, you go down to the raisin breads and then maybe banana bread, which really is probably cake, you know. So we're going down that end. Just right. a lot of the very sweetened breads. But really, when you come to, you know, kind of what you're going to make, <clears throat> excuse me, your sandwich with or what you're going to have for lunch, fibre is the one thing that, you know, I would talk about a lot to people because bread can be a really good source of fibre if you go for the right ones. And fibre is something that we all need in the Irish diet. We know that we're not getting enough fibre. The average Irish person needs about 25 to 30 grams a day. And I'd say on average, we're hitting about 15. That's what the kind of the research right. would show us. Do all breads have fibre? So let's face it, yeah. fibre is there to help your digestive system yeah. and help with bowel movements. Absolutely. And and it do can do really some breads hinder more than help? Well, some breads would be very low in fibre. And that's why we would often say, and people would hear dietitians or nutritionists would say, you know, go for the brown breads, go for wholemeal, whole grain. They're the words you kind of want to see on the packet um, because the white bread is definitely lower in fibre. And um, I actually had a look at a couple of labels. I went and kind of picked up a whole range yesterday. And, you know, the for per slice of bread, you might get one gram of fibre in a white slice pan, but then you could go up to, there's a multi-grain seeded bread that I picked up. So there's lots of, of seeds in there. So that, that's going to look very different anyway. You know, that's going to have lots of kind of nutty grains in there that you can see. And one of them that I picked up had about four grams of fibre per slice. So that's a huge difference. So if you had two slices of the whole grain seeded bread with a bowl of soup, and a salad for lunch, you know, that's eight grams of fibre with all your salad. You could even be, you know, up to 10 or 12 grams of fibre in one meal, which would be fantastic, you know, to get you up to your 25 a day. But that's where um, the dilemma kicks in, isn't it? There's the, the Moorish, tasty, white, crusty bread versus the... That you like to have, you know. But but again, you know, people will often think of having a cup of tea and toast. You know, if you're not really feeling very well, a cup of tea and a slice of white bread toasted can be just really comforting and 
That's absolutely fine. Bread is one of our carbohydrate foods, so it gives us energy. And um, when we eat bread, whatever type of bread it is, we it's broken down and digested, and it gives us carbohydrate, which is the main fuel that our, our brain uses. So we need carbs every day. Um, again, the whole grain and browner breads are going to be digested more slowly, so they help to keep you fuller for longer. Um, you may have you know, there might be people listening at home now who could pick up the label if they have a loaf of bread in the kitchen, pick it up and have a look down the side of the label. What I would say to you is they generally will give the, the amount of nutrition, the nutritional value per 100 grams and then per slice. So you need to look at per slice because obviously that's the, the way we eat bread is one slice, two slices, three slices. Um, and what you need to look at is fibre and also salt as well. So we, we know that a lot of salt is hidden in foods and we tend to think of things like crisps or salted meats or you know very high salted foods but even things like bread there's quite a bit of salt in there as well so if you're keeping an eye on the salt in your diet and um, have a look at the salt content as well but fiber um anything that's over six grams per 100 grams would be ca- classified as a high fiber bread so that's the one to go for more often than not doesn't mean you can never have the white slice pan but um you know if you're trying to t- choose a more nutritious one definitely the grained and whole grain breads are the way to go. I've heard the squash test on the slice pan that pans that spring back up have less of a water content in them and might be you, you might might, might might make a better sandwich. <laughs> okay, well then that that brings us down as well into the kind of sourdough breads. If you think of those, they tend to be kind of heavier and more dense as well. So sourdough was something that became really popular if we go back a couple of years when people were making their own, when we all had time. And of course, that brings you on to the question of making your own bread, um, which I know a lot of people do, and it's great because then you know exactly what's going into it. If you are making your own bread at home, you can make you can throw in kind of a handful of of milled seeds that's going to have lots of healthy fats in there. Like linseeds and and those kind of things. Exactly, yeah. And they're going to give you lots of extra minerals as well as healthy fats in there and fibre. So that's a great idea. Obviously, we don't all have time to make our own bread. There's a TikTok trend as well at the moment for oat bread, which is kind of oats and yoghurt, a very small list of ingredients. That's really nutritious as well. And handy for celiacs if it's gluten-free oats. If it's gluten-free, exactly. So again, check with, there are a whole range now of gluten-free breads available as well. And a lot of people who have been diagnosed as celiac um, would very often make their own breads as well. Um, So, but there is a huge range now as well, which is is really great because certainly, you know, back when I was studying um, nutrition, there were really, people had to make their own gluten-free bread. Whereas now you can go into the supermarket and pick up a gluten-free loaf. So again, there's no need to avoid gluten unless you are diagnosed as celiac or if you have a diagnosed gluten intolerance. Some people can be intolerant to gluten without being celiac and they can often find that sourdough is more easily digestible because right. the, the starter culture can break down some of the the problems or the, the nutrients in the bread that are causing the problem. But for celiacs, obviously sourdough is not is not uh, suitable. Right. Well, for people for people who, who may want to start making their own bread, star- sourdough may not be the starting point. No, it might be a bit tricky, but certainly I, I know someone who still has their starter going from COVID and right. it's still in the fridge growing and, and living there healthily. But so, our, um, look, we're, we're good in Ireland. Brown bread, soda bread, yeah. it's, it's bung it in a bowl, throw it in the oven, very little proving you, you sound like You sound like you're a bread maker, Colin. I, I, I learned from yeah. the master. My, <laughs> yeah. mother, my mother's a great brown Bread well, that's it, and we all stock in the freezer. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And that's the other thing: bread can freeze really, really well. So you know, whether you want to have any kind of bread, if you overbuy it or if you make a batch, obviously it's more it's easier to do a few while you're there in the kitchen making bread. It freezes really, really well, and you can just take it out when you need it. So you know, just think of of nutrition, think of fiber. Um, bread is low fat anyway. Just keep an eye of what you're putting onto it. So what else is important to look for in in bread? Because 
for pregnant women, folic acid in flour and, you know, there's the whole That's right, yeah. That, that's a kind of fortified really, breads. Of fortified breads, exactly. And I think people are familiar with fortified milks now and um, folic acid and vitamin D being added to milk. These are nutrients really of concern and that people are becoming more aware that they need to take. In a number of countries now, legislation has come in to fortify flour with folic acid. So folic acid is a B vitamin. It's really important for women of childbearing age that they take a folic acid supplement because it can help to reduce the risk of a baby being born with a neural tube defect. Which, like spina bifida. Like spina bifida, exactly. Which has quite high rates in Ireland. It does, yeah. I think the rates are in and around maybe six births per month, which is quite high. And that could be reduced maybe to down to two births per month if everybody had an adequate level of folic acid in their blood when they became pregnant. The problem is, Colm, that half pregnancies of the pregnancies in Ireland are unplanned. So that's the thing that if you're not planning to become pregnant, you know, chances are you may not be thinking of folic acid. But in fact, now the Department of Health are saying every woman of childbearing age should take folic acid every day. And what they're doing in other countries is they're actually fortifying the bread. So in fact, even if you're not taking a folic acid supplement, if you're having bread, which we all do eat bread, you can be getting a good level in your blood that way. You take a couple of listener questions here. We have somebody in to say that... What can you asking? Uh, what can you eat bread-wise if you have to be on a low-fibre diet? Okay, so well, a low-fibre diet. There'd be a number of reasons why people would have to be on kind of a low residue or a low-fibre diet, and it would be kind of against the the norm of what we're, we would be advocating for the general population. But again, you know, the white bread, the white kind of sliced, kind of spongy type of bread, a slice of toast would be quite low in fibre. So I presume if someone's on a low-fibre diet, they probably are seeing a registered dietitian, um, because they would have to kind of be very closely looking at what they're eating, and again to make sure that they are, you know, that their gut is still getting the fibre that it needs. So, you know, the the lower the fibre, the better in that situation. So again, it wouldn't be that they couldn't have bread because all of our carbs contain some fibre. So potatoes will have some fibre and, you know, but things like rice and pasta, the the whiter varieties will always be the lowest in fibre. The more whole grain or browner will be higher in fibre. And the oat bread that you mentioned there that's doing the rounds on on TikTok and that's popular with celiacs, is that high or low fibre? Well, that would contain soluble fibre. So probably it's a different type. It's not, there's there's sort of soluble and insoluble fibre. So the soluble fibre in oats is really good for our blood cholesterol. It can help to bring down cholesterol. So that's a really good idea to include that. So it would be lower in the insoluble fibre that maybe this listener is talking about so that might be a good choice as well Okay and just another listener question briefly can you ask the dietitian if it's possible to eat too much fibre I mean I think Yes yeah, it absolutely is. And that's why we would say to people, if you are changing your diet quite dramatically, so for example, adding in seeds, like you mentioned linseeds earlier, or the chia seeds, or they would, they actually work by absorbing a lot of fluid into our bowel. And that helps to keep everything, our stool soft and help our bowel to move more efficiently. But if you go from having a low fibre diet to a very high fibre diet very quickly, um, it can really um, affect your gut and you can have quite negative, you can have pain you can have you know if you're not drinking enough fluid you might actually cause another problem so definitely yes it's not it's like most things moderation dietitian louise reynolds on today with colima mungon Volunteers at a food bank in central Dublin say they're seeing a significant increase in demand for their services, warning they may not be able to provide enough support for those who need it most. D8 Food Bank is one of dozens providing much-needed services to people up and down the country, and reporter Kate Varley found out more on Morning Ireland today. 
mostly to, to food assistance demand would be like um, cereals, uh, rice, pastures, vegetables, potatoes, maybe some things for kids' lunches, you know, that we don't have money for kids' lunches. Margaret O'Reilly is one of the co-founders and volunteers at the D8 Food Bank in the Liberties in Dublin. It's been running since the early days of the pandemic and she says demand has never been so high. Much busier, an awful lot busier, a lot more people coming than previous years, yeah, everyday queues. There's three or four people in that queue that would be queuing there from half past eight this morning after they left their children to school. Always there, really early, and they'll sit in heavy rain, cold, wind, everything, because it's badly needed. Otherwise, there'll be nothing there for the children when they come home from school. The food bank relies on donations from individuals, nearby businesses and Food Cloud, a social enterprise that connects organisations with surplus food to charities and food banks. Margaret says the donations are always welcome, but demand is increasingly outstripping supply. It's not just unemployment, you know, unemployed people we have. We have people that work full time and they're coming. We even have nurses coming here because they can't pay the rent and keep themselves fed as well. That's the way it's gone, you know. And do you find on a day-to-day basis that you have enough to give out? No, not every day, no. Most days we wouldn't have enough. We wouldn't have enough at all. Always running short. It's sad. It's a concern shared by D8 Food Bank co-founder and volunteer Fran Dempsey, particularly, he says, as winter approaches. Well, this is what we're even finding now. The last week, coming into the winter, we're getting more new, new faces coming down to the, to the food bank every day. They're, they're, and they're coming from, not, not only from the Dublin 8 area, they're coming from all over. We have people coming from Scaries, we got, you know, so that, that far it failed like so. We had to do a ticket system because there was that many people coming down and a lot of people were coming down every day. So what we done with the tickets was we gave them a ticket for every second day. Do you know what I mean? So some, pe- some people would get a chance to come down three times a week. And then the next week they come down two, two times a week and then so, so on, you know. So that was the way we had to do it. And how many people would you say come down on average every day? Well, probably about between 40 and 50 people a day, sometimes more. As I said, we're getting new people, more new people every day. So, yeah, so it depends on, on, on the day, you know. Do you want rice, crispy? Bread? And behind each of those numbers is a person with a story, as Fran is keen to point out. About three weeks ago, just across the road there, an old lady was standing beside the house looking across. She was very embarrassed to come over. She just couldn't afford to, to, to feed herself with our light bills and, and everything else. And she, she was roaring and crying. She, she got very, very upset that she had to come to, to the food bank at her age, which, which is very sad. And we have people like that all, you know, coming to us all the time. It, it's badly needed. It really is. I, I, I urge people to come down in, in power, to come down and stand here for five minutes even. Walk in the shoes for five minutes and see what, 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 what's going on down here. If you want to take it. For the people waiting in queues today, their reasons are many and often complex, but all have been hit by the high cost of living. The reason why I'm here today is to, to get a few things because it's getting a bit of a struggle. Times are getting very hard now and money is getting very tight and bills and all coming in on the door on top of you. Before you know, before you, know you don't know where you are with them, very hard. I have the same disability and very difficult life. Uh, electricity is very expensive, uh, housing and anything is very expensive. And it's not just in Dublin. These pressures are being felt around the country.
for us, what we're seeing in services is the cumulative effect. More and more families have been pulled into this continual issue around trying to find essentials for their children. This is Stephen Moffat, the National Policy Manager for children's charity Bernardo's. It might have been the case in the past where Bernardo's would have provided vouchers to families here and there on a quarterly basis or something along those lines. Whereas now families certainly over the last year, 18 months, have been proactively asking us more and more for vouchers. You know, families who might have had money that would have been put away for any sort of, you know, rainy day, unexpected events, all those funds have completely dried up. They've had to put all that money, you know, into day-to-day bills. Are government supports helping at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and we've seen, you know, the budget last year, we've seen the budget this year have one-off measures that that will definitely provide some respite for families. And we might see that during the winter. I mean, there has been a real positive progress in terms of hospital meals. Uh, and and that is something the government should be commended for. But families are aware that this, you know, inflation is, and cost of living crisis has been going on for over eighteen months. They're really concerned about the future, particularly for very low income families. Stephen Moffat, the National Policy Manager for Children's Charity Bernardo's, ending Kate Varley's report on today's Morning Ireland. Housing Minister Dara O'Brien has been given Cabinet approval for a revised proposal to give tenants the right to bid for a property if a landlord is selling. Brian Dobson had more on the news at one. Under the proposed legislation, if a tenant and another bidder make an equal offer, the tenant's bid must be accepted. The landlord could be fined up to €20,000 if they accept an offer lower than the one made by the tenant. Plans for a, a process of independent valuation, which was included in the original scheme announced in March, have been abandoned. Let's get more from Housing Minister Dara O'Brien, who joins us now from our Rock the Studio. Very good afternoon to you, Minister. Welcome, good afternoon welcome to you, to Brian. At one. So how, you. how is it envisaged that this scheme, if and when it gets into law will will operate. Well, I think it's important to stress first, Brian, that many landlords and indeed tenants are availing of opportunities right now to sell and purchase properties uh, to tenants and to local authorities. And since we brought that scheme of tenants in situ in place, we've over 3,000 properties, um, particularly since March this year, either completely purchased or in the progress or in progress of being purchased. So it's happening on the ground, and we're providing assistance to tenants to buy homes as well should they wish to through the first home scheme and the cost rental tenant in situ. What this does now is goes that step further to provide a legislative underpinning for the right of first refusal. So basically how it it would work was that that when a notice of termination on the grounds of sale is actually issued that simultaneously uh, the tenant would be advised of that and they would be given an opportunity within the 90 day period uh, to make a bid uh, for that property. After that 90-day period, mm-hmm. like if that's accepted, it's accepted mm-hmm. fine and we have many cases being accepted at the moment going through. Um, if, let's say, that bid was unsuccessful and the landlord then um, accepted uh, after the 90 days a higher offer, mm-hmm. the, the tenant will be given the opportunity to match that bid and should that bid be matched, the landlord must sell to the tenant. So I think it, it's well calibrated. It's um, We want to make sure we have an efficient scheme in place that doesn't actually elongate the conveyancy process either. And I think we've had the experience so, of the last few months as well just to conclude on that Brian that we've seen many hundreds indeed thousands of properties actually being sold either to local authorities or indeed to tenants as well yeah. Sometimes sometimes vendors prefer to, to take a lower offer if, if it's a cash bid if they can actually get the, the sale completed quickly because it's cash as opposed to mm-hmm. somebody who's, who's raising a mortgage um, was, that, was that allowed to be, to be a factor in this? 
No, it won't, Brian. Mm. Uh, but I think what what would what would be the case is that if a tenant is actually you know making a bid to purchase it, they would obviously have to show that they've the means to do that. So be that through mortgage approval and or savings or, or deposits that people would normally have. So there's no preference given uh, to cash bids here. What we're actually finding, like there are advantages for for landlords, if I could say as mm. well, which we're seeing in selling the property to a tenant in situ, uh, you reduced advertising costs, the fact that rent is paid up to the date of sale, and we're seeing that actually happening. Uh, in very significant number of cases this what, year already. Why was the plan for an independent valuation, part, which was part of the original scheme, dropped? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was on with you the last time, um, we discussed this and I said I'd work through the mechanics of the legislation to make sure it was efficient. And as we work through that, based on the experience that we're having as well this year and actually purchasing properties on behalf of tenants, it was clear that the most efficient way to implement this was on an open market approach. And that's the way we're going with this. And why, why didn't you give that consideration at the time? Well, everything was considered at the time and I, I think we, we were in the advantageous position that because we're actually purchasing many homes with tenants in situ and indeed tenants are now starting to purchase their homes with the help of the first home scheme, mm-hmm. we're actually able to see how best it would operate. What I didn't want to do is to further complicate it by, you know... Yeah, it's the, just, back in March you announced, and I'm quoting from your release, mm-hmm. that the, the uh, uh, required a landlord to sell a property um, to the tenant on an independent valuation basis for sale. Well, I think what people find the open market approach is, is, is actually quite similar. Um, in real terms, the tenant is getting an opportunity to bid in the 90 days. If a, if a higher bid is actually offered after that or a landlord is, ex- is accepting that, the tenant's given an opportunity in a very transparent way to be able to match that. Was this just bid. not thought through at the time? I know, of course it was thought through. What I want is the best approach. And I think, you know, this is this is a new departure as well under legislation, Brian. And what we've got to make sure is that whilst adding this this additional opportunity mm-hmm. for tenants to purchase, uh, that we weren't actually in any way mm-hmm. further complicating the conveyancy process. Okay. But it's just back in March, and this was all on foot of the, the ending of the, the no-fault mm-hmm. eviction ban. So the, you, you were trying to protect tenants at a time when, when um, they mm-hmm. were facing perhaps uh, um, the termination of the tenancies. So you had this independent valuation plan put in place. You were going to bring the legislation, you said, before the the, the Eructus, mm-hmm. uh, um, before the summer recess. You spoke at one stage, I think, about a guillotine to try and get the legislation through. Now it turns out the plan actually was, was flawed. You've had to go back to the drawing board and we don't know when this legislation is actually going to get onto the statute book. No, I think with, with, with respect, it's, it's not flawed in any way, shape or form. We've actually, we've actually been operating effectively this scheme on an administrative basis since March. And the results of that are very clear. Like if I'm looking at 1,100 acquisitions completed, 1,200 in progress. On top of that, that's 3,300. We've had our first cost rental tenant in situ. That's for people who are above the social housing limits, mm-hmm. over 160 of them. And we've actually had the first approvals for tenants through the first home scheme where they want to buy that property. So we've actually seen it working and operating on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's happening. So, so I, I suppose the point I'm trying to make there is that the supports and the opportunities to secure long-term tenancies, to convert those private tenancies to public tenancies and to help tenants by mm. has actually been happening. The cost and we've been rental, able to use that the, experience. The sorry. cost, the yeah, cost rental, sorry to cut across you, the yeah, cost rental um, uh, tenant in situ scheme which you you mentioned mm-hmm. there, you talk about uh, 3,000 uh, in the process but as of the start of this month according to one report just two properties no. have been purchased under that scheme. 
I think, Brian, what we're saying, the 3,300 are where the local authorities and approved housing bodies are purchasing homes on behalf of on behalf of tenants who are on the social mm-hmm. housing list, right? So people so who, aren't being, on, who aren't so in receipt People who aren't on the social systems. housing list, we've, we've over 160 referrals in that space. And as most listeners will understand, is that when you enter into purchasing a property, uh, that takes a bit of time through conveyancing and legals. The people who, who reported on uh, the four properties just being completed, it was it, not the people who reported it, but the people who were using that as a criticism from, from a political standpoint were being uh, blatantly disingenuous about that because you don't conclude a sale of a property and indeed a purchase of a property in a 24-hour period. You've got to go through the legals. But the scheme, you have to go the scheme was announced in April. Well, the scheme is actually working very well, Brian. If you look at overall now between... between the tenant in situ... But, but since rent, April, there were, what, two, two or, or you're now saying four purchases? No, Brian, we have 164 referrals across 29 local authorities on a scheme that didn't actually exist. That's for mm. people above the social housing limits. In relation to the purchase with tenants in situ, and these were unsecured private tenancies, mm-hmm. 3,300 households now uh, are in progress between those purchased and sale agreed. And on top of that, for the first time ever, that we now have assistance for tenants that if the landlord selling and they're above the social housing limits and they, they want to purchase that home that the first home scheme is helping them do that and we've had the first so there are three different opportunities to secure those tenancies and actually by any fair assessment it's working very well I think you and everyone would acknowledge the issue the fundamental issue here is about supply the housing for all targets for this year are 29,000 in 2023 I think you, you said you're confident that will be exceeded yes. this year we only have the first quarter figures and completions by that stage were 6,760 um, what about quarter two, April, May, June? Well, we'll have that in the next couple of weeks. We'll be publishing that. What I can give you, we published our commencement uh, figures for the first nine months of this year and we have about 24,000 new homes commenced this year alone. We've even last month in September, we'd a record number of homes uh, actually started, uh, up 14% on the, on, the, on the year before. So the trajectory is good. Uh, they're moving in the right direction to exceed the target of 29,000. We will build more new social homes this year than we did last, which will mm. exceed. Last year was the highest amount we built in 50 years and a really significant amount of affordable Wait, sorry, housing. You don't have so, figures for a quarter two no, at this we'll, stage we, we, we will publish that in the next couple of weeks once they're verified, can, can, as we would normally do. Can I just ask you finally in relation to the flooding mm. we saw last week in sure. East Cork and in Waterford. Really devastation for Absolutely. so many businesses and, and, and families. And local people very critical of delays in building flood defences in sure. Middleton and elsewhere. Are there unacceptable planning delays and planning is your responsibility in getting some of these schemes underway? Yeah, and look, the the, the devastation that's been wrought on communities is, is absolutely exceptional and government are going to do everything they can and we discussed that at length at Cabinet today in relation to supporting communities that have been affected, particularly in East Cork. One of the purposes of the, of the planning bill, which will come to the Dáil in November and we'll start debating, is to provide clarity, clarity, consistency and certainty around the planning process. And that's been the largest overhaul of planning legislation since the year 2000. It's taken time to do that, but that will come in. Uh, I intend to get that passed as expeditiously as possible. It's important that that is done. Um, there are reasons why many why people may object to certain schemes or, or for environmental reasons why, why schemes were held up. Where we've put flood defences in place, they've worked mm-hmm. and, and communities will tell you on the ground the importance of these schemes being brought in. So the Planning and Development Bill, which will come to the Dáil in November, and I hope to get support across the House for this bill to get it passed as efficiently as possible. It's a large, important piece of legislation that will bring our planning system into the 21st century and it's long overdue. Housing Minister Dara O'Brien on the News at One.
Following on from a topic on Monday morning's nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan spoke to two callers about growing native Irish trees. First up, here's Tom. Good morning, Oliver. How are you? Very well, thank you very much. What part of the world are you in, Tom? I'm in Temple Logan, Dublin. Temple Logan, Dublin. And do you have a couple of uh, Irish trees? Yeah, I, I started. Uh, I started uh, a small project when uh, when I retired. Uh, something I always wanted to do was to raise native Irish trees from seeds. From seeds. So on wow. and off. From from the seed, yeah, yep. and actually, it's really it's really good to have that conversation at this time of the year because now is the time to forage, to go out and get the seeds, like the horse chestnuts, like the acorns, and like the the seeds that grow the silver birch. Brilliant. Because now is the time to start the to start the process of getting them ready, so that they'll be ready to plant out in uh, in in February March, come three week, uh, we'll say next year, yeah. Very good. What do you do with the horse chestnut? You pick it up today, and how do you store it? Uh, well, uh, you pick, pick them up today and then you bring them back home and put them in a nice cold place outside in compost and, let, and protect them from the crows and the magpies because they like to dig for them. For the mesh, and yeah. then they'll, they'll sprout away. But you, with the oh, beach, you plant them straight um, away in a, in a pot? In a pot, yeah, okay. in a pot. This is what you did. I don't have the acres in Simple Oak, so I'm, I'm a potter, really. <laughs> okay, very good. So, so you planted them from seed. Um, you, how many native trees have you put together? Oh, well, I suppose at the moment in the pots there'll be probably about 50 in total oh. and that'll be a mix across all of them. 50 but, pots, um, OK. Yeah. Uh, well, no, you, 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 at this stage, because they're so small, I mean, they're only about six inches or seven inches, so okay. you could put three or four of them in one pot. Oh, I like, get you, yeah. How old then, are they then, when they get to six inches? Uh, about uh, uh, two years, two and a half years thereabouts, yeah. Wow, it's, it takes a while, doesn't it? Well, it does, but I mean, it's a great, uh, well, for me, certainly it's a great pastime. I I love watching them growing and nurturing them and making them safe and stuff. But I mean, for instance, at the minute now, the beech trees are shedding all the seeds and that's a great time to pick up beech seed. But if you're going to grow beech, one of the first things you have to do when you bring it back to the house is put it in a jug of water and any of the beech seeds that sink to the bottom think to the bottom are good. The ones that float on the top have got little um, bacteria that are generating gas and so therefore they're no use. So that would be the one thing you'd say about beech trees. Now, beech trees, of course, aren't indigenous to Ireland, but they've been here since around 1600 or whatever. So I, I consider them more or less indigenous. That's they're allowed. Yeah, that's great <laughs> stuff, they, Tom. And I love how you're, you're embracing the Cicero's idea that you're not, you're not really retired. You're still of use and you're still doing your duty to the country. I want to say hello. I really, yeah, no, I really enjoyed his, Cicero because yeah. um, he, he was a great, a great guy. I really loved reading him, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, I want to go to Karen, who's also on the line. Uh, Karen McLaughlin, you're in Wicklow, I believe, Karen. Yes, that's right. Hello there. Good morning. You're very welcome. Uh, what have you and your family been doing? Well, um, during COVID, uh, so in 2021, um, I got in contact with an organisation called Trees on the Land and um, I bought um, approximately 800 native hardwoods, which we planted um, in uh, a space of three and a half acres in Glencree. Amazing. 800 native hardwoods in Glencree. Who planted the trees? Uh, well, it well, well, much to the disgust of my kids, um, <laughs> it was uh, myself, my husband, and uh, the three kids. And uh, what age are the kids? Uh, Sebastian is thirteen, Sarah is eighteen, and Cohen is twenty. 
So, like, a lot of teenage um, complaining going on there, I'd imagine. Yeah, there was a bit of bribing going on at the time uh, with uh, trips to McDonald's and what have you. But, uh, yeah, we got there. We got there in the end. And, you know, two years later, seeing how the trees have come on and um, how much, how they've taken off, it's just, it's fantastic. It makes you feel so good to see uh, the the fruits of your labour and just seeing uh, these amazing plants taking off. That must off be, and, yeah, that must be giving. And the te- even the teenagers are happy about that. Yeah, they will, they will eventually. Surely. But it's great. They Thank will. you very much for doing your duty, and it is inspiring other people around the place. And we should say, actually, the organisation mentioned no trees on the land. Uh, they're closed for their planting season, which is That's from uh, December to yeah. March, but they will be open for 24 to 25. Info at treesontheland.com. Tom Black and Karen McLaughlin callers to the nine o'clock show. Homework, should children be doing it at all? And how much is too much? Well, Colm Mungone was joined by Irish Times columnist Jen Hogan and freelance journalist with the Irish Independent Mary McCarthy to discuss. Oh, it's it's so far past time, Colm, to scrap it. Homework should have been done with a long time ago. There is absolutely... No point whatsoever in primary school children continuing with homework. The research doesn't back up. There's no strong um, research to back up. There's any academic advantage whatsoever to younger children. Now, it does back up, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because I'm not convinced we should have homework for secondary school children, but I'm very much, we're talking primary school children here, absolutely not. It does back up that there is some academic value when it comes to secondary school children. Um, it was a big study carried out by Duke University but the, the evidence is very weak when it comes to primary school children. And if it kind of suggests, I suppose, at best, it makes little to no difference. At worst, it's counterproductive, creating this kind of dislike for education in children from a very young age. And when we look at the, the difficulties that primary school children are experiencing at the moment, you know, when we look at some of the other studies that have come out, we have studies telling us that when it comes to things like fundamental and gross motor skills, we have one in four children can't run properly, one in two can't kick a ball, one in five can't throw a ball. These are all things that we need to create time for children to be able to work on. And homework interferes with family life. It interferes with with the very, very limited time that families have in the evening. The idea that we would send children to school during the day to work and then to come home and do more work. We would never say that to an adult. I know lots of us do it, myself included. I work beyond my work hours. That's not something to advocate. And we're instilling these really unhealthy work, rest and play balances in our children from a very young age. Mary, uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally that, disagree. That, that's the case against it. What's what's your stance on homework? So I don't really understand the hullabaloo about homework, right? Because they don't get that much of it. Like the up till kind of second class, it's only kind of twenty minutes, and then up till sixth class, it's only half an hour. I think it's really, really useful. So what I do in my house is the kids can decide when they do it. I set a deadline of six because that's when dinner is dished up, right? So they can come in, they watch YouTube, they, you know, whatever they do, the 10 best water parks, whatever videos they're watching. And then they decide and they sit down and do it. And I help uh, until second class, I think the parent, you need to be kind of not sitting there doing it for them or with them, but just to be kind of beside them so you can steer them. But after second class, to to teach them to get their books out and do it themselves and you, you like 
I say you can they can choose when they want to do it. So my daughter comes home, she does it straight. Well, actually, she's in second secondary school now, but she still comes home, and does it straight away. Whereas the boys, they leave it till half five and then they get the books out. And I just think it's a lesson in self-direction and they're going to need that. Right. So know. the benefits for you are less the content of the homework and, in, and reinforcing what they've learned in school than the discipline of time management and self-motivation. True, but they also do, they, they, they get to kind of percolate what they've done in school and I, I think it sinks in. And Jen's totally right. The evidence does show there's zero benefit. There's a really uh, good uh, New Zealand education expert called John Hattie and he says homework, it adds nothing. But like parents, he, he, he says that parents actually want homework and I think they do. I think parents do want homework. I think if our school turned around and said, You've, we've no homework, I think parents would be like, what do you mean there's no homework? Like it's a competitive world out there. We want our kids doing homework. I think that's a. Re- I actually agree with you, Mary. There, I think it is largely driven by parents. By some parents, there's an awful lot of parents who would like for there to be no homework. But trying to convince the schools to take that break or even do that trial period is very, very difficult. But parents mistakenly think that homework is the measure of the school or the measure of the teacher. And a lot of teachers. I mean, I'm campaigning against homework for a very long time, and I speak to teachers and parents and principals Since you're in about school? this all the time. Pretty much, <laughs> nearly so, but I wasn't getting away with it then. But certainly for, for many, many years now, I've been advocating for a kind of no homework policies in primary school. Um, and when, when you speak to parents and you speak to any parents who, or speak to teachers even about this, and they talk about parental involvement, they'll say that it's often parents who demand this homework, who expect this, because they do see it as that measure of the school, you know, and that belief that if a school doesn't give, a de- if a school gives a lot of homework, it's an academic school and a place where my child will succeed and thrive, where if they don't, oh, they're kind of, you know, this is this new age approach to homework. I think what Mary's saying there, when we talk about children, we tend to look at things sometimes around homework in a very insular way. You know, how does this affect me and mine? But the reality is for parents out there who have children maybe with additional learning needs, for parents who are struggling with things like literacy and numeracy, and remember, one in six adults struggle with literacy, one in four with numeracy, homework is this huge additional pressure. And it really is this totally unnecessary additional pressure that we're giving to children at a time where we should be encouraging them to do the things that float their boat instead to find those hobbies we see when they move on towards secondary school the dropout rate from sports is huge for boys and girls girls especially but boys and a lot of that is down to the very limited time that they have to themselves you know when you add in the commute when you factor in the fact that parents are often not at home it's different if you're working at home you might be able to support it but if you're not at home you're coming in very late to start that All right. so is part of the reason Mary that you mentioned there dinners at six get your yeah. homework done before that is is part of the attraction of homework that you can actually go and get the dinner done because they're gainfully occupied doing the homework oh yeah big bonus yeah they're well yeah my, my uh, uh, first class son he'll sit there at the kitchen table while I'm chopping veg and I can you know I can go over to him and give him a quick steer um, but uh, yeah, I, I really don't I don't know like I, I find it kind of odd that, that there's so many homework protesters because well, what, what, what about the argument that is, it, it's, it's not so much uh, homework itself as the quantity of homework. So say where five or six questions would be fine, but there's a page of 20 questions there where it's just more of the same. Ah, yeah, well, that's ridiculous. Now, there should be a moderate amount of homework. But just to get into that kind of, that, that habit of just, I mean, I'm a terrible procrastinator, like really, really bad but like I work in a deadline driven industry it's the only way I get my work done and I kind of feel get, get instilling that in your kids as soon as possible that they just get in they do it and I, I know there's parents who say look we're up to high dough we've got this that and the other and maybe you need to ask yourself are you too busy if you can't slip in 20 minutes 
you know, maybe your family is just too busy. Maybe your kids are doing too many activities. I think it's kind of a bonding experience. Like, I, you know, reading with my with my first class son, like we usually leave his book till till the night time. So he'll read to me, he'll read his book and then I read to him. I think that's it's kind of nice. I think reading is totally different. I don't think there's a parent out there who doesn't want their child reading more and reading for pleasure. When we talk about yeah. homework, I'm never including reading right. in that. The so, idea, so you're, I mean, when somebody does guitar lessons, say, and they're I told, think that's pra- practice this important. till next week. So you draw the distinction between school homework and guitar and lessons, and doing homework. stuff okay. that children feel passionate about, where they kind of discover who they are. I think with homework, when, when we look at homework, we talk about academics, and the whole focus is on the academic development of the child instead of looking at the other side of things, teaching them life skills, developing critical thinking, social skills, all those opportunities that other activities give them the and chance And if it was create, it was more kind of creative project work. No. No. <laughs> no way. Oh, projects God. are oh worse. God, Colin, and that's really. Projects, exactly. Projects are parents' work. I mean, I have sat there and been the head model for a Viking project oh, as, yeah. a, as another mother um, was having a cup of tea with me one day and she said, oh, while you're there, I'll just, I'll just measure this around your head. Her son was in school, but that was handed in and presented as his project. Project tends to be adult work far right, too you're, often. You're going to out somebody for plagiarism. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. All right, let's go to the hive mind of the listeners here. Homework is an onerous task to add on to an already full day of school. If an employer gave a worker extra tasks mm-hmm. to complete outside of school of contracted work hours, it'd be unacceptable. Homework's the same idea. Then I think you made that point yourself. Homework is a link between school and home. Parents wouldn't know what their children are ge- how their children are getting on without it. They can hear their reading, see their writing skills and table and maths. I'm a teacher and mum of three. Um, somebody else texting in to say there's a huge amount of valuable teaching time wasted yep. correcting homework time to stop giving it said John who's uh, a retired teacher and uh, just go for one more my mother was an experienced primary school teacher long before these recent discussions on homework she always maintained that the best teachers gave the smallest amount of homework as a parent that was my experience also the connection with school, I think that's really important. And, you know, as parents, we need to play an active role in our children's education. Some of us are privileged enough and able to play a larger role than others. But we don't need to have no connection. Like homework does not need to be the only connection between school. If we freed teachers up so they didn't have to waste time, as was mentioned there by one of your listeners, setting and correcting homework, then perhaps we could use some of those apps that we grew to hate during the pandemic, the likes of Aladdin, and use that for, for teachers to be in contact with parents. Let us know, look, Johnny and Mary, we're going to be covering this this week. So parents are aware of it. The copy books, the workbooks could perhaps come home at the weekend. We could have a browse through and address the, the children's needs at a time that suits and maybe in a way that suits us whether that's inv- more teacher involved right, in talking to them. It's complicated. I mean, it's it's just a short like, you know, and it's a really good partnership. That's a really good point because you can see then how your child is doing. Okay, they're really struggling with fractions or whatever. Then you can. You, and you can, can you help them though, Mary? Uh, listen, I can't do any Irish, and all my uh, all my kids' teachers will tell you they're like my. Unfortunately, all my kids are bad at Irish. I can't mm. help them, so I send them to Google Translate, and Google Translate helps them. Uh, another point I think should be made is that we don't really have a very long school day in Ireland, the primary school day, compared to other countries. You know, Northern Ireland is two two. I thought, I thought you were going to pick Korea there, where or, or, or for the yeah, uh, they do a lot of homework. They have like two hours primary. I think Singapore is at ninety minutes for primary. School. All right, but Jen would say where you know kids reading at home. What about kids who come from homes where? books and reading aren't a big thing and there aren't any books on the shelves. So we'd say for, you know, where homework exists, it plugs kids into homework clubs where there's other after school activities going on as well that might provide them with 
the other things that are taken for granted in other homes. Oh, if we had homework clubs, I tell you, we'd be away in a hat. Maybe there wouldn't be so much pressure on families and there'd be that opportunity to continue the curriculum in school where teachers are able to oversee it and continue that, so I suppose, have that continuity of teaching and, and teach it the same way. You know, I don't know if you've ever done the likes of um, when you're doing your subtraction now and there's no more uh, takeaways and it's renaming and stuff. I mean, we can kind of add confusion sometimes when we try to do oh, yeah. the tens and units subtraction with them in that very different way. Read is a huge thing and I, th- I know we know that there's been a big drop off in the amount of reading that young people are doing that's something that we want to actively encourage but the best way to get children reading is to have them reading the things that interest them I suppose that's the same for us as adults we tend to gravitate towards what interests us I absolutely think you know we, we providing books to children those who don't have access to it and perhaps parents who can support it the same way we are go- I'm never ever speaking about reading and, and not reading as part of homework but I don't know that it should be set in such a formal way maybe just actively encouraged to read something that you enjoy and have that engagement with your teacher and your parents at home so that they know what you're reading is level appropriate and age appropriate and there will always be things that will have to be tweaked maybe if a child has dyslexia or maybe a child is, is struggling with reading for some other reason and, and can't be supported at home but reading is something we really want to push and I'm not sure that homework obviously isn't helping here because we are not getting that increase in reading they're turning away to other things All right. Do you think there's a compromise solution then maybe between the two points of if there is going to be homework let it be little and effective rather than just homework for the sake of homework. No, you're an absolute. No, I'm an absolute. Oh, no okay. homework for primary school children. <laughs> Let right. them do the things they want to do. But reading doesn't count. Reading is totally different. Okay. Um, do we just go for one more text before we wrap here? I have three adult children. I never allowed them to do homework on Fridays. We're preparing... We are preparing chicken for working life from school. It's so important to instill separation of yeah. work and home life. Homework should be abolished across the board. Mary, do you want to counter that one more time? Before Listen, we go? they don't get homework on Fridays anyway, so that's a mute point. And sure, they're in school exactly the same amount of days as they're outside of school. So, you know, like it's not, you know, they're, they're only in school 188 days a year. Let them do 15 to 30 minutes homework. It's not going to kill them. It'll it'll instill in them good self-command practice. Mary McCarthy and Jen Hogan on the subject of homework there on Today with Colm O'Mungon. Passwords are the most hackable ones were up for discussion on Morning Ireland after a new analysis of passwords was carried out by Dr Hazel Murray from the Cyber Skills Unit at Munster Technological University and she spoke to Rachel English. Yeah, so we've been looking at lots of different passwords and in particular passwords made by Irish people and there's really strong patterns in them. Things like yeah, Sound, Newgrange, Munster Rugby, Liverpool FC, um, Sonia O'Sullivan turns up a few times. Um, <laughs> I'd say she's flattered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, it just means that, um, like, as a, you know, when you're creating a password as an Irish person, maybe other people have thought of those same passwords too. Uh, Barry's tea also shows up. Barry's tea. <laughs> and when you say hacked, does that mean that people just took a guess at someone else's password? Or are we talking about something more sophisticated than that? Yeah, so what this means is that someone create you've created a password at a website and that website was hacked and their entire password database with all their users was leaked and then it's available online for anyone to see. And despite that, I gather too that one, two, three, four, five, six, it, it, it remains as popular as ever. Yeah, it's the most popular password. You can actually, if you 
were trying to guess a password and you guessed one, two, three, four, five, six, you'd get 1% of all people's passwords. Don't many sites, don't they now specify, though, what you can or can't use? I mean, in some cases, they want numbers, they want a capital letter or they want a symbol. Yeah, that's true. And the thought was that that would help. But actually, it turns out that we're still very predictable. So people will generally use the exact same password. And if they're asked to include a number, it'll be the number one or their year of birth, maybe. If they're asked to include a symbol, it'll be an exclamation mark usually at the end. And if asked to include a capital, usually the first letter is capitalised. Gosh, guilty of all of the above. Um, (laughs) Most people now have so many passwords. I mean, at least 10, possibly more, that unless you're using a a particular password every single day, it it can be hard to remember it. Yeah, so... um, I guess the most important thing really is to have different passwords for your important sites. So anything that has your card details on it, anything that um, maybe has personal medical information on it um, or your email, which is used for all like backup and recovery, those should have different passwords. And actually the advice nowadays is to write it down somewhere securely that only you can see because realistically, the attacks we're facing at the moment are online. They're not usually the person going through your bedside drawer. Yeah, that assumes, though, that, that you're able to remember where it was that you stored <laughs> all of those passwords. There's a danger you spend half the day writing down 25 passwords and then the next time you're looking for one of them, you go, oh, hell, where did I put those again? Yes, <laughs> yes. So if, if anybody listening to us is interested in finding out more about this, you know, if they want to have a look at, at the, the most common hacked passwords, where should they go? So there's a site you can go to called haveibeenowned.com and instead of an O, it's a P. So it's kind of like have I been pwned? Um, and you can basically type in your email address and you can see all the websites that you that email address showed up in leaks of. So everywhere where you had a password that was leaked, it'll show you where it was leaked from. And it's a good idea because if you know that a password was leaked from somewhere, you should probably change that password if you're using it anywhere else. Just a reminder of that address again, because it's an unusual one. It's have I been P-W-N-E-D, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, and if people go on there, they should be able to find out more. Yeah, that's right. And there's one other place I might direct people to as well, is that the most common attacks um, are scams. Um, So maybe you go onto a website and you think it's legit. Um, You can also go to check.cyberskills.ie in order to check whether uh, a website you're visiting or a link you're following is actually legitimate. Dr. Hazel Murray on Morning Ireland. Speaking of scams, Rebecca, a caller to Liveline today, told Joe Duffy about how her family home has been falsely listed on Booking.com. Keep with the KCH logo and it refers to the Kinnegad Corner Hotel. This is a two-star hotel offering room service, 24-hour front desk, free Wi-Fi. There's four different types of rooms available for booking, double room, private bathroom, that's a, over 100 night, quadruple room for 140 a night. And the Kinnegad Corner Hotel, Rebecca Breen McDonald is where? <laughs> where? Um, 
<laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, essentially, yeah. Um, do you want me to start from the top on that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting story. So, um, basically, on booking.com, there's this Kinnegad Corner Hotel. Okay. Um, as I said, all of the lovely amenities that you listed out there. Yes. Um, not, not too affordable, to be honest. Okay. Um, but what it really is, is my family home in Kinnegad. So okay. what happened is someone has uploaded uh, it as a listing, um, this Kinnegad Corner Hotel, um, put the address as like my dad and stepmom's house in Kinnegad. And people have been showing up over the last three weeks. Oh, they've arrived with their suitcases and their beach balls and their buckets and spades. <laughs> oh, the whole shebang, yeah. Um, thinking, yeah, we're going to stay here in Kinnegad. And then my dad would have to answer the door and be like, no, this is my house. <laughs> um, and it's a scam. So, yeah, it's kind of been going on for three weeks. Um, it took that long to actually get it taken down. And it only got taken down because of media requests from journalists. Thank God. Yeah, the journal um, around it, yeah. The, the, yeah. So it, you've checked in front of your, your house. There is no sign up saying Kinnegad Corner Hotel, a neon sign that flashes. No, no. neon sign. No neon it's not sign. even on a corner. The house is just <laughs> in a housing estate. <laughs> just a normal, a normal four-bed, semi-detached house. <laughs> um, so who, definitely not a hotel. So who turned up? I don't want their names, obviously, but what, what type of tourists turned up? At this suburban um, house, thinking it was a kindergarten like, corner hotel. Oh, bless them. It was like four different groups of people. So, like, the first one called, um, he actually, the person lived in the area, and he was trying to book for his sister. But he was like, oh, this is really weird, because I live in kindergarten, and there is no hotel. So he called to the door, and, huh. um, yeah, my dad was chatting to him. And then it took it took my dad about 12 hours until he found out that uh, that place is up on booking.com to... Um, to find a phone number to ring customer service. Um, so it was during the first week of October, he had rang them, I think like the 6th of October or something. And they said, well, we'll look into it. And if it's something bad, we'll take it down. And then three weeks later and three more groups of people arriving and still hadn't been taken down. There was like someone that went there for their anniversary. Um, they said like, oh, it was really suspicious. They actually got rerouted to another website or something. And they were getting okay. a lot of emails and then, yeah, family but um, <laughs> they were there to stay. Uh, but luckily, they stayed in Lucan, and I think they were planning a night out or something in Kinnegad Town. And uh, they had to decide that one of them would be a designated driver and drive back to Lucan oh, that evening. Bless them. But when they when they got to what they thought was the Kinnegad, the Kinnegad Corner Hotel, which is in an <laughs> estate, and they didn't see yeah. a sign, or they saw uh, uh, just a suburban house. Did were they? Were they disappointed when your father opened the door? Well, I'm sure they were. But to be fair, um, my dad did say that, like, he told a couple of the people it was a scam. And they were like, we kind of thought it was too good to be true because of yeah. the rerouting to the new website and, like, the, the weird emails and things like that. But at the same time, <laughs> if you're driving into a housing estate and, <laughs> I don't know, like, there is no sign for the hotel. It's, it's just yeah. a house. Just really normal house. <laughs> and what about the fo- <laughs> the photographs of the beautiful the double room Dion suites? They're gorgeous. I know. Well, they're not exactly what the house looks like. On the- they're actually nicer than what the house looks like on the inside. Uh, so I don't I don't know where those photos are from. They're not from inside the house. It would be more scary if they were from inside the house, actually. Uh, but yeah, 
I don't know who, I don't know where those photos are from. And are you gone off booking.com now? Yeah, they took it down, I think, yesterday after the journalist got in touch. Mm. But, like, we had been on to them multiple times before that, and they they did nothing. And then oh, there was okay. even a review left, because there was someone that visited last weekend, and then they wrote on it that it was a scam, it was someone's house. And, uh, yeah, then um, they still hadn't taken it down. So And do, do, of the people, who the, the tourists that arrived at the so-called Kinnegad Corner Hotel, ha- had they parted with money? Yeah, I think some of them had and some of them hadn't. So some of them, like the neighbour and all, they were coming to just check to make sure because they were like, that's strange. But a couple no. of people did pay, yes. Uh, something like €101 Euro a night. And would you, you wouldn't be tempted between yourself and your dad to get a sign made for the Kinnegad Corner Hotel and open the business. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need another hotel, to be totally honest. Okay, um, okay. But now, yeah, yeah. Now no, the, the, I, the only thing is, it is your address that's up there. It is your dad's address that's up there. Yeah, exactly. That's so the, it would say on the booking serious. thing. That's yeah. I know, it's scary because we were lucky that the people that did arrive, they were all so, so nice and so understanding. But like, someone could show up and be like really annoyed. Yeah, and for, in yeah. fairness, like, there's no, no harm in that because like, they could have travelled God knows how long to get to Kindergarten. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they, but yeah. they could have, God forbid, they could have turned around Rebecca and said, well, are you in on this scam? That's exactly what we were saying. We're like, they could think that we were in on it. Obviously, we're not. Yeah, obviously, um, yeah. yeah and uh, like they had planned to go down to Clare to visit family and all for the bank holiday. And they had to cancel it at the time because they're like, well, what if we leave for the bank holiday and God knows how many people will show up? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, that's serious. And, but thankfully, it's been taken down now. Okay. But uh, yeah. Okay, well that's done. The, that's the story. Well done, well done, well done. How was Kindergarten these days since, well, the bypass is 20 years ago at this stage, isn't it? It's that riveting there, as always. Don't, don't, Rebecca, don't get, don't do a firm eye on me now. And Graham, (laughs) (laughs) and Graham Norton, the people of firm eye got very upset. Okay, Uh, say hello to everyone in in Kinnegad and uh, well done, Rebecca Breen. McDonald, Joe at RT.ie, one text. And that was Rebecca, a caller to Joe Duffy's live line. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.